Nā tau ko tau tūroa tāna ko tau mārama, tihei mauri ora. Ko Niklo Ahau, I am the uh, program co-director of Word Christchurch. Uh, it is my absolute pleasure to say no mai haramai to Tamark Solomon. Kia ora, Nick. Kia ora. Um, we've got a few acknowledgements that we want to do first, just before we kick off the kōrero. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge Mark Revington, uh, the co-author of this book that we will be talking about tonight, Mana Whakatipu. Uh, we are here to talk about your life, your work, but where it all begins uh, for me is, of course, with, where are you from? Born in Christchurch, uh, St Mary's Hospital in 1954. Um, lived all my life in Christchurch, but had a parents, a father that was born in Oaro Kaikoura, um, and a mother born in Dunedin, but they always, always stated that our home was Oaro Kaikoura. Mm-hmm. And can you paint us a picture of Oaro? What is that for you? Coastal, it's the first little coastal committee, uh, coastal community that you hit on the Kaikoura coastline at the southern end. Um, a big lagoon, big swimming hole, heaps of kaimoana. Um, it was my playground most of my childhood. Mm. And uh, you've got uh, a deep history there, really a deep history there. You know, one of the things that really struck me about your memoir is from a really young age, you were pushed into positions of responsibility. Tell us about the Urupa at <laughs> sort of. That was So my grandmother died in 1977. We all go home for the tangi, of course, and we get there and our uncles go, you lot, get up that hill and dig our mother's grave and make sure you do a good job because it's our mother. So we trudge up the hill, get up the top, and my older brother goes, we need water, you, go and get water. So in those days, there was no road up to the Utapa. You had to climb the hill and carry the bodies up the hill. So I go down, come back with some containers, walk up onto the Utapa and my brother comes up to me, hand extended, congratulations. So congratulations on what? You're now in charge of all burials for the family. <laughs> well, don't I get a say? No, it was unanimous, so you'd have lost anyway. So now here's your first job. I said, well, well, I thought you said I was in charge. Yeah, yeah, whatever, go and do this. Um, so in my time, I buried 26 of my family in wow. that Utapa. Wow, and that's a responsibility because, you know, for how long have your whānau been buried in that Utapa? Um, only since the 1930s. Uh, mm-hmm. My family's actually from further south from Oaro, about another three k's around the coastline from a place called Mikanui. Mm-hmm. But when my great-grandfather died in the 1930s, the people of that Utapa said to my great-grandmother, don't sledge him all the way around to Mikanui, bury him up on the hill. Mm-hmm. So my great-grandfather was the first buried in that Utapa. Right. And there's now about 30 of us buried in right. that Utapa. And you seem to have a knack for people just kind of throwing you in the deep end with responsibilities for things, because it wasn't just the Utapa, the family whakapapa came to you as well, didn't it? Uh, came in a sort of a circuitous way. I was always interested in the whakapapa. <laughs> to be honest, it started, my grandfather was telling one of my aunties off. She had run down a family, and I'll always remember what he said to her. He said, you know, the trouble with you, you don't know who you are. It doesn't matter which night of her family you run down, you're actually running yourself down, because we are a tribe of cousins. Mm. Well, I love that concept. In mm. fact, as the kaifakahaira used to often say, oh, I work for 68,000 cousins. <laughs> Which I do. <laughs> well, I did, I should say. So I, was an, I got interested in the whakapapa. I learnt that my grandmother's only surviving sister had a full copy of all my great-grandmother's manuscripts. My great-grandmother ended up in the hospital in Kaikoura in the 1930s. She thought she was dying. 
So while she thought she was dying, she wrote 14 school exercise books on all the whakapapas and the histories of the Ngāti Kūri people mm. to hand on to us. Mm -hmm. Well, I rung this auntie up, great aunt up, and said, Auntie Eva, could I come down for the weekend and have a look at Nanny's manuscripts? I oh, don't be silly, dear. I'll photocopy them and send them. So she sent the whole lot through to me. Amazing. Amazing. Now, that was my grandmother's side, but my grandfather's side. Um, that was actually a man caught by the name of Trevor Huppy House. Mm -hmm. Trevor worked for, he was actually our first representative for Kaikoura on Turunango Nato. I'd never met him. He just rang me up one day, come round to my house. So I went to see him. He said, I hear you're interested in the whakapapas. Yes. Well, I'm not going to show you your grandmother's side because your family stand on that mana. Um, and he handed me a stack of Whakapapa like this, your grandfather's is in here, come back when you found it. Um, How long did that take you? It took me about three months to work it all out, but one of the ways of testing Whakapapa is you look at other manuscripts of that period. Mm. Um, so it took me two years to find other manuscripts that could back it all up. Mm -hmm. And if I look at her Whakapapas, as opposed to Matiahatira Moirahu from Moiraki, mm. They're identical, except for Matiahatira Moirahu has two extra names back at the time of Tahu Pōtiki. Right. But other than that, they're identical. Amazing. And um, I'd gone home for one weekend, and my dad's elder sister, my auntie, said, oh, I believe you've been dabbling in the whakapapas. I said, I've been trying to learn them, yes. Do you think you know them? Yes. So she ordered her son to bring in a big roll of paper, which she just chucked on the floor. Right, I write them all up. I said, do I go back to Papa and Rangi? Pardon? I said, do I go back? Yes. So I did that, came down into the realm of humans, and I was putting male, female, don't put her, auntie. The fact that they're half-brother, half-sister, they did that sometimes mm -hmm. in those days. Mm -hmm. She's still a tupuna, and I'm not going to leave her name out. Mm -hmm. Well, there were two like that, don't put that name. Um, when I'd finished, she just turned to her son, go and get all the whakapapa books, and handed them all to me. You're now the kaitiaki. Wow. And how old were you at that point? About 24. 24? Yeah. Right. No pressure, just to... <laughs> no pressure. No, not at all. I guess, you know, reading your memoir, one of the things is that there are some really pivotal figures within Ngaitahu that have been influences for you, early mentors. Yep. You know, I'd love you to tell us a little bit about uh, your grandfather, Rangi, Solomon, uh, Uncle Trevor, uh, and also Kikupa, Uncle Kikupa. Well, my grandfather, Rangi Wawahia Solomon, um... I've described him to my children as the most human human being I've ever known. Amazing man, amazing knowledge. Um, Tipani O'Regan described him to me as the tribal strategist when he was on the Naitahu uh, Māori Trust Board. He said, a lot like you. He used to hog the heater, lean over the heater of the whole meeting, said very little until the end, and then he'd just lay it all out, and that's the direction that they'd go in. Mm. So he was a a very pivotal person in my life, an amazing man, as were my uncles, my uncle Johnny and my uncle Bill. Um, very humble men, very knowledgeable men, terrible public speakers. Um, in fact, the first time my uncle Bill, he was being pushed forward to replace my grandfather on the Naitahu Māori Trust Board, and he had to go up through Marlborough talking to Naitahu. And in his first speech, he stands up and he puts his hands on the chair he's standing behind and he's that nervous that he actually broke the chair as he was talking <laughs> um, and it was a bit of a 
public speaking was a bit of an issue for me because I'd never been a public person. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But you soon learnt pretty quick when you chucked in. Trevor Happy House, uh, commonly known as the Weka amongst Naito mm -hmm. and Harry, he could find government papers that had been missing and mm -hmm. lots of trucks where papers fell off through Trevor. Um, but he was the man that brought me in, uh, got me involved in the tribal politics. In fact, I went, the first tribal hui I ever attended was with Trevor in 1988 at Arofenua. And when we went down, he said, after the pōwhiri, when we go into the whare for the hui, I just want you to stand against the back wall and just watch. And on the way home, we'll have a talk about what mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. So we spent the day there in the car. He said, well, what did you see? And I said, well, I saw Tipunei Regan and the trust board up on the stage giving their presentation, everyone in the whare. But all day, through one of the side doors, would come one of the old ladies into the meeting, tap someone on the shoulder. That person would go out. And a couple of minutes later, Mr Chairman, I've got a question. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems to me, Trevor, that those old ladies dictate what happens in this tribe. <laughs> That's what I wanted you to see, because if you want to get involved in the politics of NATO, if you cannot get those toa on your side, you'll go nowhere. They run the tribe. <laughs> and I don't America. dispute that. And that, they were beautiful. My first meeting as the representative for Kaikoura was at Tomutu. Um, I got there early. Uh, there were three people there. There was George Waitai Tikau, who was the representative for Onuku Marae. There was Kath Brown from Tomutu and Ruahine Crofts from Tuahuriri. Mm. As I walked in, George walked straight up to me, and I'd never met George in my life, but he goes to me, Mark, we are close relations. In fact, Hannah Solomon, who is the eldest of my grandfather's aunties, married into the Tikau family. Mm -hmm. So they're really the Matamua line. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a close relation, and I'd take it as an honour if you'd sit at the table with me. Then these two other voices come, and by the way, dear, we're your mentors, and you'll do what we tell you. <laughs> <laughs> One of those mentorships. <laughs> but they were awesome mentors. Mm -hmm. It was never dictating. It was all lessons. Mm -hmm. Like, an example, I'd gone out to Tuahiwi, bitterly cold, got there before the home people. They all arrived in for a mihi and it's freezing. So when I responded, I just stood up and gave the response. Came to the hungi in the haridu, and I get to one of the elders, John O'Crofts, and he goes, are you in a hurry, boy? I said, no, why? <laughs> you got your coat on. Yeah, because it's freezing, man. No, looks like you're ready to run. That's all he said. Mm -hmm. That November, we had our huiato down at Orakaparima, um, Colic Bay, which is the centre of the universe, I might add. Well, that's a debatable point, you know. I always <laughs> thought it was Kaikota, but if you're saying it's down there. <laughs> the but it anyway, is. it was freezing. My turn to speak on the pie, so I stood up and I took my coat off. Hear a young girl behind us go to her grandmother, Toa, what's he taking his coat off for? It's freezing. He's showing respect to the people. Mm. So Jono's just little, a year and a hurry boy, mm. was a lesson. Mm. That, you know, when you stand up in front of people, you take your coat off. And it's a traditional thing. Um, and it's a bit like the Asians. So the Asians, when they handle business cards, it's always with two hands, mm -hmm. the name facing you, and they present it. Mm -hmm. But if they ever present it from a single hand, it's always from the right. Mm -hmm. and there's a simple rationale. All traditional Asian swords people were right-handed. Right. To hand something with your left and leaving your right empty, your weapon hand is free. Mm -hmm. It's taken as an insult. Mm -hmm. 
you stand up in a pipe and you take your coat off because you're saying, look, I'm here for talk. Mm. I'm not here for war. Mm. So it's a traditional thing. Should we have taken our coats off? No. No. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're amongst friends. We'll show the stomach. <laughs> <laughs> we're amongst friends here. Um, so obviously there's a, there's a real whakapapa of leadership here. You know, you're, you're getting these lessons. When you actually took on the role, when you were thrust into the role of kaifakahaere, did you feel ready for that role? No, because I thought, I mean, I've always described my journey with Naitahu as a whole series of accidents. So I attended my first tribal hui in 1988, and I was blown away with what I heard. Then my brother and I started lobbying up home. You know, you need to get registered, we need to do this because we've got a settlement process. Um, the day that I got elected, I had actually hadn't been nominated. I'd gone home to vote for an elder cousin and I was nominated on the day and I won it by a 47% majority. And in a perverse way, what I was really proud of is that I didn't get supported by my own family. Mm. Not saying that my family were opposed to me, <laughs> but um, the majority of my family, all but four, voted for my elder cousin, mm. who was one of the nominees. Okay. I got the vote of all the other families of Kaikota and I've always been quite proud of that. Mm -hmm. And when I thanked them, you know, I said, I don't know, understand why you voted for me. I have a whakapapa right to Mangamanu, to your marae, but I've actually never been to a meeting there. I'm takahanga. Mm. Mark, we accept that your family is the rangatira family, but you are the only one that if you think something's wrong, will stand up and challenge. We believe that you'll look after our interests. So it's those Mangamanu families that kept me in the role for 18 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the, when they put you in that role, it wasn't just a kind of gentle easing in in a few meetings and, you know, it sounded like a bit of a baptism by fire. Uh, the, the role as the representative, no, that was pretty good. There was a three-year lead-in. Mm -hmm. Again, when I became the chairman, I described that as another accident. Mm -hmm. I'd simply gone to a meeting, a Tarunanga meeting down at uh, Karitani, Pukataraki, and was nominated on the day and took out the chairmanship. Mm -hmm. So that was a massive shock. So I'm, I'm elected as the Kaifakahaere on Saturday the 26th of S September. On the Monday, I sat in a lawyer's office with Tipeni O'Regan in Wellington signing some of the settlement papers. Mm -hmm. uh, Monday afternoon, we uh, stood outside Pipitea Marae, because Naito was staying on the marae for that night. Um, I'm out on the street. The deputy Kaifakahaere comes out to me. Mark Tipeni wants you. So I went out to, do you want me? Yeah, get in the front. What for? You're doing the whaikorodor. I can't speak Māori man. Mm. You've got two minutes, 35 seconds to learn. <laughs> so, okay, and I bumbled my way through a whaikorodor. Um, he came up to me after and said, well, that's it for you. Tomorrow we get on the bus, we go up to Parliament, we go up into the gallery, watch the passing of the bill, then we come back here for a, a hākari. I hop on the bus in the morning at Pipitea, it pulls up outside of Parliament. I go to hop off the bus and Tipani standing at the steps. He says, see that building over there, third floor? It's called the Grand Hall. There's four TV channels, roughly 200 people waiting to do a porphyry, you're it. And to be honest, we had a bit of a dispute. I said, uh, I think you're being a bit of a dickhead. Um, <laughs> Naitahu's big day in front of the nation and you're putting a total non-speaker up. You wanted the job. So, again, I bumbled my way through a whai corridor. But what I forgot to do in that, I forgot to acknowledge the rangatira from other tribes who had come to support NATO with mm -hmm. the passing of our settlement. Mm -hmm. And after the porphyry, I went up to them, 
one of them being Api Mahuika of Ngāti Porau, and I apologise for not acknowledging them. Api, in a typical Māori fashion, looked at me and said, oh boy, we could see the two tie running down the back of the legs. <laughs> there is no issue. <laughs> you know, that sort of corridor brings you back straight back to earth. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing people. Mm -hmm. um, but two things that happened in that uh, pōwhiri, which I'll never forget, when we were doing the hungi and the haridu, and I got to Jim Bolger, in his hand he had his business card, his private number. Mm -hmm. Anytime you need any help, just ring me. Mm -hmm. And then Doug Graham did the same thing. I had met Jim Bolger once before, and I'd met Doug Graham once before. Mm -hmm. But both of those gentlemen did that, and I had spoken to them after that and were always very mm. supportive. Mm. So it was an amazing, terrifying, but an amazing experience. Mm. And, you know, when you go into public life to that degree, obviously there are some implications for your whānau life as well, you know? Yep. What was, uh, you know, obviously we're not going to go into any detail with your whānau life here, but, you know, uh, what, did, what did Maria think she was getting herself in for? Well, <laughs> no, I'll do it this way. So, Elected on Saturday the 26th of September, come home on the Sunday, I'm home about half an hour and my phone went. And it was Lady Sandra O'Regan, and it basically was, you're to bring your wife round to my house immediately, click. So, girl, I think we're going out. So we went round to their house, knocked on the door, Sandra opened the door, go and sit on the seat with Tipani and keep quiet. Come in, please, Maria. I've asked him to bring you round because you need to know what he's got you into. He probably thinks he's got a role where he's going to be chairing a meeting once a month. I am telling you, this job totally consumes. He is going to miss every one of your children's annual birthdays. He's going to miss your anniversaries. When you go out as a couple, you will always have someone who will come and sit at the table and want to talk. So you need to know that you are now a solo mother. And it would be fair to say that because of the 18 years as the kaifakahauri, I averaged 80 hours a week, and I worked 42 weekends a year. Mm. And the, the working on the weekends is quite simple. When your people are a working class people, you go to them. Mm. Not mm. that they come to you in your time. Mm -hmm. Well, their free time was the weekends. Mm. So most of my week, 43 every year mm -hmm. for 18 years, mm -hmm. I worked. Did you ever think, you know, even on that first day, did you think, hang on, is, did I sign up for this? Is this? No, I thought I was getting a job. I was going to chair a meeting once a month. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting, like my first day in front of the Chief Executive Officer, Sid Ashton, who was our CEO at the time, amazing man. He goes to me, so I suppose you want to be on the same as your predecessor. I said, no, I don't even know if I can do this job, Sid. You know, I've spent 25 years as a metal worker in foundries and now I'm in front of a corporate. So I don't know if I can do it. My wife and I both work. This is what we get collectively. I want to be on that, please. Mm -hmm. And if at the end of the year I can show that I can do the job well, I, I expect to come up to what my predecessor was on. Mm -hmm. So at the end of that first year, I got what I believe was a AAA um, report on my performance, and they offered me 5,000 less than the previous one. So I got a bit snotty and said, ah, absolutely not, I want 50 grand extra. And I just about had a heart attack when I said, oh, we can't do that, we'll give you 35,000 extra. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, you know, one of the things that, I, that really struck me reading your memoir, and also just from having spoken with you previously, is 
you speak simply and clearly. You're really good at explaining yep. things. What was it like when you arrived in, in the corporate world? In, you know, board meetings, jargon? It was a foreign land. And it would be fair to say that I drove the boards of NATO, all the subsidiary boards of NATO crazy. Stop. What does that mean in English? Stop. What does that acronym mean? Why don't we just talk normal? If we talk normally, we can understand what's going on. But you've got an industry speak in each of the industries, full of acronyms. It's just pointless. Mm. Well, I'd argue it took me six months to train the boards mm -hmm. to speak normal. <laughs> but a, an example is um, a manager came to me one day and said, Mark, I'm going to send some staff up to your marae to talk to your people around strategic planning. This is in the early, just after settlement. I said, good, but I want you to come too but you're just to sit into the audience with me, you're not to speak. Mm -hmm. So a couple of months later, up come two young Naitahu graduates, been out of uni for about six months, and they gave my elders a three-quarter hour talk on strategic planning. They'd finished, and the elder stands up and says, you two, that, without a doubt, has been the best presentation I have ever seen in my life. You have to keep coming back here and bring us old fossils into this new business world <laughs> that Naitahu is embarking on. But I want to repeat what I said. That has been the best presentation I've ever seen. Now, the ladies have got some kai on for you. Away you go. As soon as the door shut, he turned to me and said, Righto, boy, what the hell were they talking about? Translate. <laughs> and I just turned to the manager. This is why I wanted you to come. You needed to hear this. Mm -hmm. So, Uncle, let's do an exercise. As the elders of Takahanga Marae, what would you like to see the Marae trustees put on this Marae for your generation, for your rangatahi, and for your mukupuna? And we ended up with 25 ideas up on our whiteboard. Said, so, okay, for the second part of this process, if you look at all these projects you put up, let's rank them as the most important to the least. Mm -hmm. We did that. I said, there, there's the next five year strategic plan for the Marae trustees. But that's simple, yes. Well, why didn't they talk like that? They did. They just used a different level of language. Mm. They've forgotten that they've come home and they're speaking to granddad, grandma, uncle and auntie. They're still talking in the language of the professor. Mm. And they just didn't understand what mm. it was talking about. Mm. And I stopped a scientist on Amadai talking to us about demicell species and benthic biomass. Hang on, please, men. Whānau, who knows what a demicell species is? Is that a species with dermatitis, dear? <laughs> no, it's a species that lives on the bottom of the ocean. Man, what's the point of talking to us like this? Talk to us, not at us. Yeah. Keep the language simple. And I tried to follow... So if you take uh, President Obama, beautiful speaker, but all of President Obama's speeches were written to a 12-year-old's reading comprehension. Mm. He keeps the language simple. Mm -hmm. And I've always found that the best way to operate. Mm. I very rarely ever gave speeches using a speech because it just doesn't feel natural. Mm -hmm. In fact, I got to the point where I'd get them, if you want me to do a speech, all I want is bullet points and I will speak to the bullet points mm -hmm. out of my heart, mm -hmm. not through a written word. Mm -hmm. And I've always found it's the best way. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest compliments I ever got in a sideways issue, I'd invited uh, the National Party and the Labour Party to an Iwi Cheers Forum in Kaikoura. And I'd invited them up to talk about the changing demographics of New Zealand. Um, if you don't know them, it's quite scary in some ways. By 2026, which is only five years out, Māori, Pacific Island, Asian and ethnic will be 42% of the population of this country. By 2050, that same grouping is over 50%. Mm. But by 2050, well over 50% of all Pākehā New Zealand is on an age benefit. Mm. And whether we like it or not as a nation, 
By 2050, the bulk of the taxpaying workforce of this country will be Māori, Pacific Island, Asian and ethnic. Mm. Now, my rationale for calling the meeting with the both political parties, in 2006, 58% of all Māori boys, 58% of all Pacifica boys left the compulsory education system of zero qualifications. Mm. But their children and grandchildren are going to be the mainstay of the taxpaying workforce of this country. And I simply do not believe that we can survive as a first world nation based on a workforce of labourers. Mm. The whole nation has to go to a new level. Mm. So I started lobbying both political parties. Hey, here's the data. We need support from you to turn around this underachievement. Mm. It would be fair to say that Labour laughed at me, didn't believe one of the words that I said about the data, and was told, actually, we're not interested. I met with Bill Inglis, Georgina Tuhuhu, Chris Finlayson in the afternoon, put the same brief to them, and all I got back was, whoa, 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 too much data. Can you put this in writing? Yes, send it to us and we'll give you a response. Never heard a thing until the Friday after the 2007 election. Mm. Myself and seven other Iwi chairmen got a meeting with John Key and Bill English, mm. who had just won the election. As we were ushered into the office, the first statement was, oh, glad you were here, Mark. All that data you sent us, we've taken it to the Department of Statistics and they've backed you on everything. So they would. That's where I got the data from. <laughs> it's in the census documents. You've got your agreement. Now, the compliment was, my auntie's sitting beside this man called Timmy Tuhuhu and Georgina, his wife, is the here with Bill English. My aunt goes... What do you think of that lady politician? Oh, she's amazing. You think so? Yes, she's my wife. Well, you have to say that. <laughs> and then she said, it's obvious you all like my nephew. How come? You know, sitting beside her. Um, and he went, well, your nephew's got a very rare skill. We've sat in meetings with him that we've just been glazed at the level of language. And in about half a dozen sentences, he can explain it in simple lay terms that we all get. Mm. He's got a real gift like that. Mm. I took that as a massive compliment. Absolutely. Keep things simple, then everybody understands. Mm. Mm. At, at, in times of crisis, that simple, clear communication and the ability to respond in simple, clear ways yep. becomes absolutely imperative. I'd like to move us to the Christchurch earthquakes yep. and the Kaikoura earthquake as well. And, you know, when, when Ngaitahu was... was you know, in the middle of that, what were some of the responses that we were able to make and what was your experience, you know? Um, it was pretty good, actually. So I'll, I'll talk about the February earthquake. Mm -hmm. So we had it on the Tuesday. At 2 o'clock on the Wednesday, I'd managed to organise a meeting with all the tribal groupings living in Canterbury, all the Māori NGOs at Rehua Marae. Um, it took us about 10 minutes to get an agreement that we'd work as a collective that Naitahu was to be the documenter of all information. Um, so the first thing when we reached that agreement, well, go home immediately, have a look at your own organisations because you're also the victims of the earthquake, mm. and actually come back here tonight at 7 o'clock, what can you do? So we also that day had TPK arrived under Leaf Coma and the Minister, and Leaf, Leaf just stands up and says, well, Mark, as of now... TPK, Canterbury, belongs to Naitahu. Use it for whatever means. Mm -hmm. The police under Wally Homaha agreed that they would work with us. We'd bring wardens from all over the country. They helped to billet them, transport. 
Now those wardens door knocked in over 10,000 doors, delivered 2,500 food packages. Um, we just went out into the community, but we agreed as the collective of all the iwi living in Canterbury mm. that we'd adopt the theme of aroha nui ki tangata, meaning mm -hmm. doesn't matter who we come up to, we helped. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just we go out and help our own, mm. it's everybody. And just on that area, so at the end of the first week, Tainui Wakato, Raukawa and Tain, uh, Te Arawa. So Raukawa, Tainui sent down a group of doctors as their koha to the Canterbury community. Mm. And Tainui, uh, sorry, Te Arawa sent down a group of nurses. Mm. The nurses came down with a fully covered trailer full of medical supplies. They used the whole lot on the first day in the eastern suburbs. Mm. Then got into a bit of a fight with Canterbury Health about resupplying them with medical equipment. And the argument run by the Canterbury Health was, well, 80% of all the medical centres in the eastern suburbs are still open. We do not believe these nurses and doctors are necessary, and we'd like you to get them out of the city. <laughs> and they actually sent a, a whanaunga that works for them to come and talk to me about it. And I went, well, Fiona, now that's their view, that those nurses did a whole trailer load of medical supplies in one day. Mm. There is a big need out mm. there. But if you don't like it, that's fine. I'll see you on the 6 o'clock news tonight. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> well, I'll go on the 6 o'clock news saying that Canterbury Health rejects the, the koha of doctors and nurses from these tribes. Mm. You won't do that. I said, I'll see you on the 6 o'clock news. <laughs> Two hours later, they fully supplied those nurses again. <laughs> but just to give you an example of what it was like. So all the nurses and the doctors came back every night at 7 o'clock and all the wardens and we'd... Whatever they'd gathered data, we documented it all. Mm -hmm. um, this nurse comes to me and said, oh, Mark, I knocked on the door and a skinhead opened the door. He even had a swastika tattooed on his forehead. I nearly peed my pants, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> but this guy looked and said, oh, lady, you better come inside. She went into their home and in their lounge they had their wheelchair-bound Māori neighbour who was on a colostomy bag. They had showered him changed his bag, and as the nurse said, only into Waipounamu would you get the skinheads looking after the Maori. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I don't think it's like that fire. You know, we've had a disaster, and when you have a disaster, we all become immediately equal. Mm. We're called victims, mm. Mm. you know. How are we doing as a city? You know, what is your view, given what we've been through, given all of the experiences over the last decade plus, how are we actually doing? I personally think we're doing pretty good because if you go back to the time of the earthquake, they always talked about the recovery would take 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. So we're, what, about year 10? Um, I'm starting to quite like the new look of the city. Um, I like the lowering of the building heights in the centre because to me it gets rid of the concrete canyons. Yes, yeah, the, the easterly wind tunnel. Yeah. It makes it different. And mm. I think we're going to have a, a truly stunningly beautiful city once it's all finished. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking forward to when we start all the plantings. <laughs> <laughs> Better start them soon. Yes. yes. You said before, you know, I'll see you on the 6 o'clock news. Yep. You know, when there's a pressing issue, the media becomes critical. Now, t what is your sense of the New Zealand media and their treatment of Māori? Um, I think the whole country does things looking at everything in the deficit. And, and I'll give an example. I was appointed through Cabinet 
to a body called the Interim Tarōpū, which was to look at how do we develop a national strategy of how we deal with the family violence sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. The senior Crown official that run that process at our first meeting goes to me, do you realise there's nearly 3,000 Māori in gangs? I said, I did know that, Sarah. Did you know that they make up 0.3% of the Māori population? So in this head, it then tells me that 99.7% of Māori aren't in gangs. Have you considered looking at it from that perspective? <laughs> she immediately come back with, well, you can't dispute the prison populations. I said, I don't. I know that the male Māori population is 52% and the female Māori population of prisons is 64%. But when you have a system where you have brown skin, where you are four to six times more likely to be stopped by a police officer, six times more likely to be charged, four times more likely to be multiply charged, then you get to our court system where people with brown skin are 11 and a half times more likely to be remanded in custody, and the latest data, Sarah, from justice itself, seven and a half times more likely to be incarcerated. When you have a system like that, simple mathematics would tell me that the biggest population in prison would be Māori. Mm. But let's take the male inmates. Do you realise that they make up 0.8 of a percent of the Māori population? She came back to the next meeting, and I'll give her her juice. She opened with, I haven't slept nearly all month because of you, but you're right. Thank you. We've taken a deficit approach to everything we do in this country. Example, 38 Māori women in Northland arrested for shoplifting. 37 of the 38 put through a full court prosecution process that cost the nation $1.4 million, but the 38 women combined had stolen $700 worth of goods. Now, I do not forgive the crime. You want to commit a crime, there's a penalty. But for me, to spend $1.4 million to punish for $700 ranks up in stupid land. As a small nation, we can't afford that sort of nonsense. There's got to be a different way of looking at it. The media, they have that deficit view. And I challenged uh, the editor of the press here at the time, Tim, Tim Pankhurst, um, and I asked him, is your neighbour Māori or Pākehā? My neighbour's a Pākehā. So if he or she goes out and commits a crime or does something wrong, are you responsible? Are you guilty? Mm -hmm. Well, of course I'm not. Why would you ask that? Well, your editorial, when Mike Smith, the active, activist, attempted to cut down the tree on One Tree Hill, your headline was Māori. You blamed the whole race for the actions of an individual, just acknowledge you wouldn't do that for your own people. Mm. <coughs> and how did he respond? Um, well, what could he, how could he respond? Mm. It was his mm. editorial. Mm. Um, and as I said to you earlier, so he did an editorial on, his, on NATO who had, we'd locked Mata Waka out of a seat on the Christchurch Polytechnic Board. So I challenged him over. I said, where did you get your story from? What do you mean? I said, well, you didn't get it from the Polytechnic. You didn't get it from Mata Waka. You didn't get it from Naito, so where did your story come from that we'd lock them out? What do you mean? I said, well, it goes like this, Mr Pankhurst. I personally received a phone call from John Scott, the chief executive of Christchurch Polytechnic, telling me that the Matawaka seat on the Polytech board had been absent for two years. Mark, you know all the tribal groupings. Could you organise them to appoint another member? So I'm sitting in my office at Naito one Monday morning reading the editorial of how we'd locked Mata Waka out. At the same time, Mata Waka were introducing their new board rep that they'd appointed in my boardroom the Friday night before. But according to the press, we'd locked them all out. Mm. And I still have not got an answer from Mr Pankhurst of where he got the story from. Mm. 
Which, yeah, it begs a lot of questions. Do you think things have changed? Yes, um, and I think it's changed for me. First, I mean, I've always had a pretty easy ride with the media. There's a couple of uh, reporters out there that I'd like to meet in a dark alley one night. Um, <laughs> but the majority out there gave me a pretty good run. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the big change came in 2004. I was invited to be the keynote speaker at the Editors' Conference of New Zealand. And they'd asked me to come and give them a talk on the Naitahu structure and what our aspirations were mm. as an iwi. But the kind person that sent the invite put a PS on the bottom, if you have any issues with the print media, please feel free to raise it. <laughs> Dumb. So they got a printed handout on the Naitahu structure and then a 45-minute tirade from me on how they treated Tainui when Tainui lost 46 million back in 2003. Mm -hmm. And my issue around it was that the media had given Tainui Wakato a 15-month public humiliation in the sense that every week one of the editors would raise Tainui has lost 43 million. Mm -hmm. But at the same time that Tainui lost their money, ANSET lost 60 million and it wasn't reported. The Hartnell Company in Auckland collapsed, owing 110 million to its creditors. They named the chairman of the board and not one director. And we, the taxpayer at the same time, bailed out Air New Zealand over its failed 800 million takeover of ANSET Australia. That board was named once. Mm. So, you know, why the double standard? Again, the then editor of the press leaps to his feet because it's called bloody public money. What did you call the bailout of Air New Zealand? But how much bloody public money did Tainui get? They got $170 million. They did not. They got $170 million worth of value. The bulk of the Tainui settlement was land, not cash. Mm. And if you care to go and talk to them, every piece of land that they received in their settlement still sits in the Te Whero Whero Trust. But none of you have ever bothered to go and ask them. Mm. Mm. Well, getting in the room with them and actually being able to lay it out like that, you know, so much comes from that. Well, it was a woman editor that sorted it all out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she mm -hmm. just stood up and said, Mr Solomon, what are you after? I said, I want you people to do your job properly. Mm. You mean to give a balanced re report on anything. Mm. But when it comes to issues Māori, there's only one side of the story, and it mm. sure as hell ain't Māori. Mm. Since then, things got a lot better. Mm. And I'll cut... I mentioned it before, we had the so-called Tanifa issue up in Hamilton where Tainui Wakato said, you can't put the road through there, there's a Tanifa, and if you go through there, it will create issues. Mm. Well, I received a phone call from a young reporter from the Christchurch Press, a bit of a giggle on a voice, Mr Solomon, can I please interview you over the Tanifa issue? I went, oh, yes, please. Hell, next I'll be talking about angels, demons, and a man that can walk on water. <laughs> there was a bit of a pause and then a giggle. I think I get the point, Mr Solomon. He said, well, I'm a Catholic. We have the concept of the angel-demon, good and bad. You know that a tanifa can be the same. It can be for good. It can be for bad. It's not silly. It's just different to your belief system, and you do not have the right to ridicule because it's not how you think. Mm -hmm. That young girl went, Mr Solomon, there will not be an article, and there wasn't. I really wanted to ask, you know, a lot of your work recently has been around family violence. Yep. And, you know, this is something that has plagued New Zealand in a way that I don't think... Perhaps we have many the highest wanted. levels of intimate partner violence of any country within the OECD. Mm. That is New Zealand. Mm. And the estimate is that uh, up to one and a half million women and children per annum in this country mm. are under violence. Mm. 
and the male side is... So the uh, sexual abuse rate of New Zealand women is one in three. The sexual abuse rate in, of New Zealand of males is one in six. Mm. Mm. And, and how do people react when you raise it? Um, well, I'll, what will I use to so, say? In 2017, I was received an invitation to be the keynote speaker at the Museums Conference of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And they simply gave me a theme being, do museums have a responsibility to raise social consciousness? Well, on November 2016, the Canterbury Museum run a photographic exhibition called Bristlecone, which is an international movement. This photographer goes into different countries and he photographs sexually abused men. So the exhibition here in Canterbury was a photograph of 24 Kiwi men, mm -hmm. three-quarter size, mm -hmm. and beside them in writing was their story of abuse. Mm -hmm. So because Canterbury had done that, I decided that I would give the museums a talk on the dark side of New Zealand, mm -hmm. a talk on the family violence sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Three-quarter hour talk, then a 20 minutes for questions. First woman who stood up and asked a question was in the front row of the theatre. She asked the question, I answered but before she handed the microphone back to the runner, she just lifted it and went, can I please ask if there's anyone in this audience that has been a victim of either sexual abuse or family violence, would you please stand? When she heard a rustle, she turned around and over 60% of the theatre had stood. Mm. All Pākehā professionals. Mm. It is in every sector of our society. It is male-driven and it needs to be cleaned up. Mm -hmm. Just putting it into simple perspective, just for the Wellington region, for two police officers to attend the family violence call-outs for 214 was 226,000 hours of police work. And back in 2014, 40% of all police time daily was family violence. This city, roughly 2,500 family violence call-outs per month. In an 18-month period, Christchurch and Hamilton had more family violence call-outs than Scotland, which has a population similar to New Zealand. Mm. So it's a huge issue. Mm. Now, I received all the data from the police commissioner in 2015 to say that I was shocked as an absolute understatement. I was stunned at the scale. Mm. So at the... Kuiato, the AGM of Naitahu in 2.15. Every year I'd do a sort of a State of the Nation address. Well, on this one, I opened with all the family violence stats on the screens. And basically, I went, Naitahu, this is us, because mm. we are encapsulated in this data. Mm. You consistently tell me that the foundation of our culture is whakapapa, and I totally support that. But that statement in this data surely has to lead to a question and the question is, what are we doing about this? Mm. Because it seems to me that we all know that family violence goes on, but nine times out of ten, we tend to go, oh, it's not my family, it's that one over the road. Mm. But mm. it is in our family, and we've got to stop turning. So I sought permission from Naitahu. I want to start coming out across the communities, and I want to start discussing this. What are we doing about it? Mm -hmm. It would be fair to say that I got a standing ovation. It would also be fair to say that there were a lot of uncomfortable people mm. in the room. Mm. I've done 28 hui across the South Island so far. I started off just with Naitahu. 
Then I got invited, would I come to Natikuya in Canvas Town and run the corridor? In the porphyry, I'm told off and I'm reminded that Te Waipaunamu has nine iwi, not just one, <laughs> and we expect you to come up here too. We now roughly have a 1,000 whānau that follow us. We've now got six navigators whose sole purpose is working with the families mm. to fix the issues themselves. Mm. Um, the second meeting I called, it was out at the Lincoln Centre, and there were 80 Māori women. And in the front row was Tariana Tūdia. So I'm introduced, and I just hopped up onto the microphone, and I said, look, could I please ask, would every woman in the room please pull your hair back off your forehead and hold it? So I had 80 women like this, and I just stood there. Finally, Tariana said to me, Mark, why are we doing this? I said, oh, thank God, someone's asked a question. Well, Tari, you Māori woman roughly make up 7% of the population of this country, but in the family violence stats, you're roughly 50% of all victims of family violence. Mm. I just wanted to pull your hair back so I could have a look at your foreheads to see did you have tattooed on it, punch me. Interestingly, not one of you has got it there, so what's all this rubbish about, Tariana? She looked at me and said, only you would put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I am going to come to every one of your hui from now on. So of the 28 I've attended, Tariana's attended 26. Mm -hmm. But it's been a simple movement, and under the integrated safety response model, it is our view, based on the data, that starting that program, Tupono to Manakaho to Fano, we've had an 18% drop in family violence amongst mm -hmm. Māori. Mm. And I think it's, we've all got to do this. Mm. We all have to confront this. Mm. You can't leave it to the, the agencies to deal with it. Mm. It has to come from us. We as whānau have got to say this is not acceptable in our family. Mm. But we don't. Mm. It is time to open the floor to questions. There's a bit of a debate going on at the moment around... Um, how we should teach history in, in schools. I was just wondering if you had an idea of that, how we should teach the history, particularly of this area, um, in schools, so that people get a really good understanding. Mm. Here would I put it? So the, the day that I got elected as the chairman of NATO in 98, we stopped for a cup of tea after the election. I'm surrounded by a group of elders. One of them says to me, well, boy, you're pretty white, and because of your skin colour, you would never have seen how negative the South Island can be. But now that you're a chairman of an iwi, you are in for a massive lesson in life. Because of that Karoa's uh, comments, I took it upon myself in my first four years as the chair to get out into the communities to talk about the myths of the treaty process. And one of the first questions, I'd, it was mainly questions I'd put to the audience, how many people in this room believe the Waitangi Tribunal is a free process? And it was interesting that every arm would go up. Would it shock you to know that that free process cost Naitahu $20 million from start to finish? Um, I used Hauraki as an example back then. Hauraki had spent $7 million in the Waitangi Tribunal, $5 million at by 2003 in so-called negotiations, with absolutely no sign of a settlement anywhere, but still they had to raise that $12 million, we had to raise that $20 million. Um, my favourite question was always, how many people think the settlements are too big? And you'd almost hear the tendon snap as their hums would go up. I would, well, let me give you an example of an exercise that happened in the Waitangi Tribunal for Naitahu. The head of our tribunal put a question to Treasury, 
If Ngaitahu had been allocated all of the land reserves as guaranteed under the land sales, what, in your opinion, Treasury, do you think the 1988 value would be? The report that came back was, in their opinion, the value was between 12 and 15 billion. Our advisors, Credit Suisse First Boston, absolutely refuted that and argued, no, it's between 18 and 20 billion. The only offer put in front of Tipani and Quantum was $170 million. There is no discussion. It is take it or leave it. Um, and I used to put to the audience, let's reverse the positions. We, as a NATO, who have stripped from all of your families, and I'll take the lowest figure, $12 billion worth of assets, and then we come to you and say, hey, mate, we'll give you $170 million as a full, final, fair, just settlement for the loss of that $12 billion. Would you accept it? In four years, I never, ever got a hand go up saying that they would accept it. So the Naitohu settlement of $170 million is roughly 1.5% of what we lost. That was the so-called full, fair, just settlement. Now, I'm actually a signatory, along with Tipani and others, to that settlement. I will never state in any forum that I believe that the Naitohu settlement was fair and just. But in saying that, I still voted in favour of accepting it. And I took a pragmatist view. If we, Naitahu, could not build a capital future based on a $170 million capital injection, then it wouldn't matter what we got. Mm. So cut your losses and accept what they put on the table. Mm. When I finished in two, March the 1st, 2017, we had a net value of $1.7 billion. But even though we've done very well in that regard, I still will never acknowledge that I think the settlement was fair and just. In the same token, there's no way any government could compensate the iwi fully. You'd bankrupt the country. But it's not fair and not just. And when I finished in, again on the 1st of March 2017, up to that period, there'd been about 148 breaches of our settlement by the Crown. None by us. In fact, the first major breach, Jenny Shipley turned up at Ōnuku Marae to formally apologise to Naitahu. The following day, I led a delegation back into government threatening to go to court because they'd massively breached our settlement the day after the apology. Mm. So, I mean, one of the things Tipani always said to us, forever and a day, you are going to have to defend mm. that settlement. Mm. Things are changing. I think New Zealand's starting slowly to grow up. Um, whether we like it now or not, we are a multicultural country. We have to learn how to work with each other. I would still say that we haven't actually cracked how to live together in a bicultural society. But now, I think the last count that I've heard, there's 186 separate peoples that live in New Zealand now. Mm. They are the new New Zealanders. Kia Mark. We are going to have to leave it there. We are out of time, but Rauraka tēra mā homai te paki paki. Mark Solomon. Very gentle.